to the Find Your Awesome podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott, and I'm your host. I'm an intuitive human design reader, a certified professional coach, and an instigator of joy. And I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. I'm excited to share with you this week's guest, Michael Shine. Michael recently wrote the book, The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. Michael is all about taking the most impactful tools, especially when it comes to marketing and getting them in the hands of the good guys. He is here to help us make good trouble, as the late John Lewis would say. And in his own words, he is here to create benevolent mischief. The Hype Handbook is available everywhere books are sold on January 12th. So go get your copy or pre-order your copy right now. And now... Here's the conversation. But first, of course, a little reminder. You are unique. You are amazing. You are magnificent. You are a miracle. I love you. Go forth and be awesome. We're going to talk about, where, where should we start? Boundary breakers? Sure, let's do that. Who? How did you become interested in boundary breakers and all the other non-conformists? I would like to say that I'm just like this deep rebel and that I was always a rebel. I think I'm a little bit like dual personality. So on one hand, I was always really a goody two-shoes in a way. Like I didn't get into like serious trouble. I did mischievous things, but I was a good student, you know? However, at the same time, the people I always admired were were people on the fringes, you know, who didn't play by the rules. So like, um, and it came out, I, I feel like I'm rebellious in my artistic expression, you know, I mean, I would write stories and songs that were really dark humor. I mean, there was a song I wrote about shooting up the school that would have gotten me kicked out of the school if I did that right now. And but this was in like 1992. And, you know, it was just funny, you know, <laughs> before any of those tragedies happened. So I was always trying to, you know, we had like a, a, a magazine we put together like Xerox pages called the foot that was like a severed foot, you know, on the masthead, you know, so just always like trying to get a rise out of people. And I liked punk rock a lot. And, and things like that. So I think, I don't know where that came from. I mean, it was just this weird dichotomy in me. Um, and just, I, I played in bands after a while and we would always promote ourselves in these kinds of ways too. You know, we would always kind of do really theatrical over the top things and get attention that way. And I don't know, I just, I've always had that interest. So while I always was um, motivated by achievement you know, like I wasn't going to be an artist in a garret. I also always was fascinated by and weaving in some of that benevolent mischief, I guess. I, I'm Those words are delicious together. Benevolent mischief. <laughs> I'm just going to sit with that for a second. <laughs> okay, so this isn't... Well, I mean, it sounds like this has been in you forever. I guess, I mean, I, I'm thinking back to like, you know, I always wanted to be a writer and I was always a reader. And um, I I don't remember a time where I didn't read. I, I guess I just- What did you read as a, as a kid? So I was gonna say, so um, 
I was going to say Roald Dahl, who's very dark and funny. But even before that, I used to have these little skinny abridged versions of Dracula and Frankenstein that I read a million times. Um, yeah, that just, yeah, Roald Dahl. I did like the Narnia books a lot. Um, but I was always reading. I read, a, I mean, you see it on my wall. I'm not that into it anymore, but someone bought me those. But I really liked comic books a lot, you know, as I got a little older. Um, but yeah, just, just, but I always had that, that kind of skewed sensibility. Roald Dahl was the person who I remember I wanted to emulate as a writer. I remember he had this thing, revolting, uh, fairy tales. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Roald Dahl's revolting rhymes. Revolting rhymes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what it was. Roald Dahl's revolting rhymes. So I thought those were hilarious, you know? Um, so yeah, that was always sort of my aesthetic, I guess. What was it about reading that you loved? Was it the, like going off into imagination or was it the words or the artistry of it or something totally different I think it was the imagination part I mean I have all of these friends who are writers who who always say that they love language and I don't think I do I mean I love words you know I mean I'm really interested in like the origin of words and cool words but like when when people talk about loving writing because the sentences are so perfect yeah I want my sentences to be good you know I, I care about that but I, you know, I think for me back then I read fiction. So I think that was, um, yeah, the imagination being able to be lost in a world. And also I think, and now that I'm writing nonfiction, I think I've always, I mean, I was one of those kids I used to sit around and read the encyclopedias, you know, like not the dictionary, but I would just take up like the B and just like look up random things. And I think, and I was always one of those people who I like the sound of my own voice. I've come to realize, and I would just, did you know that, you know, the, uh, the bee was actually, you know, dies every winter? And I just felt the need. People would, I think, get a little annoyed at that. So then when you put it into writing, somehow it becomes like, oh, interesting. That's fascinating, you know. But when you're just telling people, you're like mansplaining or something, you know, or voiceplaining. So, <laughs> you know, so then you got to become a writer. That's so interesting. And this resonates so deeply with me too. Um, like as a, my career as a science writer, what I was doing, what I loved about it was people learning tidbits about science. Right. And when somebody would be like, tell me something, I would <laughs> basically, it was usually a parent or uh, someone that the first thing that would come to my mind is, uh, sea cucumbers breathe out of their butts. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? It is. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, now you know. Yeah. yeah. I got some factoids too. Um, and yeah, it helps when you write them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, so yeah, I like having those kinds of conversations, but have you ever noticed that in certain crowds, just kind of explaining things that are interesting, maybe can wear thin on some people? Absolutely. Yeah. So. And yet, what is it? Reading it at our own pace, being able to control the input somehow that's better for us. Yeah, maybe that's it. I mean, I think too, that's part of it. I think I, I you know, I've, I've found that it's funny when something is in print, people, it's like a heuristic, like people think that it's like the, like it has a credibility or a weight, you know, that someone's spouting their mouth off doesn't have. I actually think speaking of hype, it's just amazing how many of these, you know, self promoters, these really, really powerful, like, leaders of movements not only do they have a book they have like a bible it's like the seven habits of highly effective people or mm -hmm. you know the book of mormon or 
Dianetics. It's like you read this thing and it'll give you all the answers to how everything works. And somehow when it's in the pages of a book, people, people, people put a lot of weight on that. You know, and that's really interesting. And I see that today. I see that in the podcasting space. Like I'll see people do obviously doing a podcast tour and it's like, Oh, this person I'm having them on my podcast. Cause they wrote a book. Right. Right, and, right, and, it, and, it, and it's easier to say yes to that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So why well, sometimes? Is that? Uh, wait, I want a disclaimer okay. Okay. because there are a lot of pitches I get about people who wrote books, and I'm not interested. Okay, fair enough. Well, you're you you have a quality. I'm very filter. discerning. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's important. <laughs> Only books that interest me. Yeah. So. <laughs> Topics that interest me and people that interest me. Yeah. However, like it, it's amazing, right? So, like, um, so first of all again, not every book's created equal, especially in the self-publishing space, right? Because anyone can publish a book now. And I know, I know, you know, you get to keep more of the money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, when a publisher picks your book, it had to be selected. So that does mean something to people. Um, Whether the books are better or not, I don't know. There's a lot of great self-published books, but also there are books and then there are like secret to the universe books, you know, like the 48 laws of power, right? Everyone wants to talk to Robert Greene, right? Mm-hmm. But the person who wrote, you know, leadership strategies for the 21st century, the 98th version of that book, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's maybe not as interesting. How do, so speaking of these, this like, I don't know, tomes, Bibles, whatever we're calling them, and the people that wrote them, uh, how did you choose, like, as we're talking about hype, as we're talking about mischief makers, as we're talking about benevolent mischief, <laughs> which is right now my favorite phrase ever. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You, you will always I came up with that. that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, wait, let's define that first. So what does benevolent mischief mean? The, the way I think about it, First of all, I have to tell you, and we were talking before the podcast, too, I love how this conversation isn't just like a list of questions that we're just like popping all over the map and we just get to cool stuff. That was like, what did you say your type was? The, the yeah, I'm man- a manifesting generator. Isn't that what we're doing right yes, now? For we, yeah, that's cool. I like We're that. following the joy. Yeah. All right. Good. Okay. Well, I like that a lot. Um, you know, I, I think Obviously, the word hype, I mean, I chose it on purpose because in general, it's considered a negative word. I mean, what it's traditionally meant is, I mean, it comes from hyperbole, which means the exaggeration. So it's like you don't really have much good stuff and you're puffing it up. But um, to me, I realized that a lot of the artists and even business people and creators that I like aren't just people who sit in their garage and create. I mean, that's fine. You know, there are some, but I don't know, even in like music, I prefer Bowie to the Eagles. You know what I mean? Like the Eagles, you know, they strum their little guitars and they sell records, but to Bowie, the, 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 the mischief, the theater, the, the press generation, that was part of the art, right? Like he used to show up when he was doing his Ziggy Stardust thing before he was really popular in the U S and he would show up in a limo and make sure the press was there. And he didn't even, cause he was the, he was the greatest rock star in the universe, not just on earth. I mean, he came down from outer space to save humanity with his, with his rock and roll or whatever. So I just, or like the sex pistols, like Malcolm McLaren, all of, all of the, the hype that they caused. So to me, that's benevolent mischief. Like everyone thinks that, you know, promotion and 
hype is the best word for it. It's just this thing you either at, at best have to do to get the word out about your stuff. And at worst is just rotten, you know, and manipulative. And to me, sometimes it's enriching. It like adds a certain playfulness to, to, to the stuff. Richard Branson is another example, you know, with, I mean, the guy's been happily married for 35 or for 45 years and he drives around on a jet ski with a naked model on his, on the back and lets everyone capture. I mean, that, you know, that's not by accident, you know, he's creating a persona. It sounds like these are people who live the story. Yeah. And they, and they engineer the story. They Mm -hmm. don't just live it. Right. I mean, sometimes they make it seem like they're living it like Bowie and Richard Branson and all these people have a lot of fun, but they're very calculated Mm. or Warhol, you know, it's not like Amy Winehouse, who was a great artist, but she just, I mean, she ended up in a bad way, but if you forget about that, but she just kind of like, Oh, there's a party. Let's go to the party. Let's do that. You know, it's just kind of bouncing around. She just had a lot of talent, but these people were meticulous about engineering everything. So there's a, is there always a strategy to benevolent mischief? I think so. I think there's always a strategy to hype. I think that's part of it. I think it's when you, when you, um, so benevolent mischief is like the, the positive form of, of hype. You know, I, 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 you know, hype is, is amoral. It's neither immoral or, or moral, but yeah, I, I don't think, I think some people, I'm having trouble answering your question because I think that some people are really natural and their MO is to operate in a manipulative way, like the like Donald Trump, mm-hmm. you know? I'm not so sure how strategic he is. Maybe he is. But I think that he, the water he swims in is hype. He's just so good at manipulating reality and getting people to follow along. So I, I'd have to be inside that, that strange brain of his to, to know, but like something tells me he's not as strategic as people say, but yet he hits all the right buttons. He's really, he, despite what you think about his policies, he is so good at it. His human design, um, just his, like his primary personality is having, speaking with an amplified and dramatic voice. Is that, is that, that's like, a, that's that is a, his, yeah. the biggest gift his soul chose for him. Huh. And he's using it. Well, yeah. And I think, I so do you, I, that's interesting. I wonder if a lot of these hype artists speak with an amplified and dramatic voice. However, like you look at Warhol, who was one of the best ever. On the surface, he spoke with a very quiet voice. He, mm-hmm. he turned his weaknesses into strengths, but the world could hear his voice. So would you consider that an amplified? Because he was so surface, like you, he wasn't really, but meaning he was he was he said two words and it resonated around the world now is that an amplified and dramatic voice or is that I don't know I'm gonna look it up I'm totally gonna look up his design when we are done because I am so curious because is it amplified as in it's actually loud or is it amplified in that for some reason we hear it exactly yeah that's the question right because he everyone heard that guy I mean we still use his I mean 15 minutes of fame, whatever. I mean, he has so many quotes, mm-hmm. but he really didn't speak a lot. Yeah. Who was the first one? Like, so when you were, when this book idea started brewing? Yeah. First of all, did that scare you? What? When a book, 
when when you realized, oh my God, I'm writing a book? <laughs> no, because I had been fishing around for a book idea for a long okay. time. I mean, yeah. Um, and I just, I think I kind of, I mean, I've always written even when I was doing, I mean, I owned a business and before that I had a corporate job, but I always wrote like fiction and, and stuff. And I always wrote articles um, in my professional life. And, um, but I also knew that professionally I needed a book if I was going to get to the, to the next level. But all the ideas I had were very like utilitarian, boring things that I didn't really resonate with. So I waited for a long time. And then what and then happened? This, this I got obsessed with. How did this one, what sparked this one? I think it was an evolution. I think there were a couple of things. Um, I think it unfolded in waves. So I, when I started, so I, I left my corporate job and became um, a freelance. I thought it was a copywriter, but it was more of a content writer, like writing white papers and, and web stuff. And um, it was really tough for me to get new clients. Like, when I would happen to get one, they liked my work and would rehire me, but it was, I had no idea how to, to like generate attention and, and, and sell and all of that stuff. However, when I had been in the more artistic world, I had no problem with that at all. I just didn't think of it as marketing and sales. I thought of it as like what you did when you wanted to get attention for your band or whatever, you know? So I started to apply those that benevolent mischief to what I did. And I started to have a lot bigger results, you know, for the writing stuff. And then that turned into an agency because people started to want the marketing more than the, um, the, the writing, but that took a long time. So as for the book, wait, wait, yeah. what did you do? What? So as a former freelancer, yeah. um, what did you do? How did you generate hype for your yeah, writing? So, so one of the things I did, if I think about it now is one of the, at the same time, it sparked the idea for the book. So like one of the things I had, had learned was that, you know, us versus them is just a dynamic none of us can avoid, right? And, and it doesn't have to be like trolling people. In fact, that's not sophisticated, but it's placing your ideas sort of in contradiction with other ideas and building tribes around them. So before that, I was being kind of really nice about, you know, oh, the, the five tech, you know, I had a column in ink that I had just mm -hmm. gotten through through um, a connection of mine. And, you know, I was just, I was writing okay articles. I remember one I wrote was like how to write content the Marvel way because they had a very systematic process. And that was fine. Okay, it was nice. But um, then I started thinking about how, you know, I used to put up posters. I feel like I'm, I keep talking about death, severed feet and all that. We put up posters called Dave Matthews must die shooting up schools. I'm sorry. Like I, I'm not that bad. You know, I, I wouldn't hurt a fly, but, but anyway, we, we used to put up posters. Dave Matthews must die because all the, the, you know, the punk rock kids like on the Lower East Side hated that kind of like hippie music, you know? And so we knew that it would attract them to us. Right. So I was thinking about that and do you know who Gary Vaynerchuk is? Yeah. Right. So he's huge in, certainly in my world, he's probably connected to your world in some way as well. Loosely, yeah. Yeah. I think everyone's probably heard of him. Although, like, I don't think my mom knows who he is. You know, like in our sort of professional services world, he's he's sort of a big That's deal, true. Yeah. People with an online business. They, they've all heard know of him. Know who he is, yeah. Yeah. In any case, I used to, this was 10 years ago, and I used to hear him, first of all, I want to say, I think he's a fantastic business person. I think Wine Library was a great business that had real meat, you know, whatever. 
But when he went into sort of this like guru space, he would constantly be yelling and screaming to these young people that they need to work around the clock. And he would say, can I curse on this show? Because he yes. curses. Or is it, he would say, I, you know, you got to, you know, be on social media so much that I get up at three in the morning, I take a shit and I'm tweeting while I take a shit. Like, that's what you have to do. And I was like thinking to myself, like, how is that a good way to live? You know? So I started thinking about it and it turns out that like, Gary Vaynerchuk doesn't make the wine. You know what I mean? He sells the wine. He's a salesman. So what if you're like working on your business? Like, plus he had the ability to spend a lot of time doing this. And again, this isn't to take away from him. We all get help, but he inherited his dad's liquor store, as he calls it, which actually did $3 million a year in revenue, right? So he had the luxury to do that. So my business at the time was all about structured content. So I had a process for turning out content quickly that was high quality using a process. And I thought that was really important because my clients didn't have the time to do what he was talking about. So I wrote an article in Inc. called Why Gary Vaynerchuk is Flat Out Wrong. And I basically, I was really nice, you know, because I don't believe in trolling. I, 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 I First of all, I said he was a good business person. I said all of that. But I said that, you know, the advice he's giving young people benefits Gary Vaynerchuk. It doesn't benefit them because it, it creates this sort of mentality of like work like a dog. And it, why isn't everyone as rich as Gary Vaynerchuk? What you need is structure. So that night, and I was a nobody, like seriously, like really struggling. And I was scared to post it. It wasn't that, you know, I mean, I, it was an experiment, but I was nervous. So I put it out. And that night, I was not expecting this. He made a video and he was calling me out by name. And uh, in the beginning, he was like, well, I respect what Michael Shun does. And then he went off and he was sweating and he was like really upset. You could tell. And, and all of his maniacs or fans or whatever, they started blowing up my phone. You're lazy. You're fine. I, I didn't feel lazy. I was like working like a dog and like hardly seeing my family trying to build this business, you know. But I guess I was lazy from, from their point of view. But, but um, in any case, um, uh, I was like, oh crap, did I really screw up? You know what I mean? And then I looked the next morning and I had like hundred, like a hundred more Twitter followers. And it, it turned out like all of these people were probably thinking the same thing, but they needed a leader. And that was really like the start of my career. So like I started doing more things like that and it, it, it worked. I mean, that's fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I'm, I'm, sure. I'm just going to hold that in the back of my head and percolate on that for the next couple of weeks, probably with my <laughs> business. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. Okay. So then, then you finally get a book idea that sets your soul on fire. Well, sort of. So I, first of all, I, I had, you know, I was writing for a couple of different publications. I was writing for Inc. Then that turned into a column with Forbes. I did a thing once in a while, I would do stuff for Fortune. And now I do some stuff for Psychology Today. And those, those digital versions of business have like a really big appetite for articles. So I would always try to think of things. And um, at one point, I remember I thought it might be a podcast too. I wrote, I was like, wouldn't it be cool if like all of these characters that I'm so interested in, I profiled them. I could call it hype men, like the hip hop, you know, like hype man, you know, I mean, like there are women too, but weirdly enough, there aren't that many women. There are a few, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I was, I, I was looking for more women and there are some, but um, there are, there are fewer by, by a considerable degree. Um, however, um, I started writing some articles uh, in that regard and they just dwarfed 
in terms of eyeballs and views and shares my other articles. So that was the other thing. And then the thing that really made me decide that it should be a book was, goes back to our good friend, Donald Trump, actually. So we, I was on a business trip and it was one of the first debates of the primaries. So it was a long time ago now, around the time I had the idea for the book. So I think this may have been the defining thing. And I was laying on top of the like duvet and the debate was on and I was flipping through this book. I read these weird kind of crowd psychology books and biographies and it was called The Crowd by Gustav Le Bon. And it was um, this guy witnessed the Paris Commune, which that was a group that had good intentions, I guess, in the beginning, but eventually it was very clear they were gonna lose and they just went into a frenzy of like burning Paris to the ground for no reason. And Gustave Le Bon didn't understand how this could have happened. It was so like senseless. So he like dedicated his life to studying how crowds respond irrationally to certain kinds of leaders and images. And I was reading what he said and it was like prestige. This book was written in 1895. It's like prestige is one of the great markers that a crowd responds to. If there is no prestige available, money will do. You know, future-focused visual language that doesn't have a meaning that you can really put down, that means something different to every person. And I'm watching Donald Trump, and he didn't sound like, he didn't even sound like he had prepared, as, as he never does. And everyone thought he was a, a clown. And I was like, I think this guy might win. It was like someone, it was like he read this book, and we know that he didn't read that book, you know? And so I came home to my like crunchy beacon, New York, you know, friends and, and, and we're like, I think this guy could win. You know, they're like, you're ridiculous. There's no any, any. And, and so I don't know. And it's no secret that I think Donald Trump does more harm than good. I know there are probably Republicans who will buy this book. I'm just going to say it. That's my opinion. However, he's really good at this stuff. And there are a lot of bad people are good at this stuff and they come to it naturally, but the, the strategies themselves aren't bad. So I said, I'd love to put these strategies in the hands of people trying to do good stuff, you know, and teach them how to use it ethically. So that was sort of the idea, I guess. I love this idea. And I, I kind of love it so much that inspired by Trump. I, I think, I mean, there was a lot, I mean, it wasn't just that, but I think that was sort of the match in the, uh, the Tinder box, you know? So who else, who's in there? Who do you cover? Who do you profile? There's a lot. I mean, um, I'll, I'll throw out a few. I mean, there's there's a guy named um, Edward Bernays who um, was the father of public relations. I mean, he's almost single-handedly responsible for uh, women smoking. I mean, women did not smoke before him for Americans eating bacon. He had a government overthrown in Guatemala for the United Fruit Company. Um, the head of the, the guy who founded the Nation of Islam, Wallace D. Fard, is in there. Speaking of women, and I said there, there aren't as many, but uh, one who is really uh, significant is a woman named um, uh, Amy Semple McPherson. She was the first celebrity preacher, like every evangelist, you know, um, comes after her. But then I talk about Richard Branson. I talk about Martin Luther King. I talk about, um, you know, in terms of, um, yeah, Thomas Edison. I talk about, um, there's a lot of examples, you know, um, the, the Alice Cooper's manager, Shep Gordon, uh, Rolling Stone's first manager, um, Andrew Lou Goldham, who came up with the phrase, would you let your daughter go with a Rolling Stone, which made parents everywhere terrified. 
<laughs> um, yeah. What do all these people have in common? I, they have 12 things in common. I mean, literally, that's why the subtitle. So I, I read such a wide swath of people who are so different. I mean, everyone from Charles Manson to Warren Buffett. And they're, they used similar. There was one principle that they shared in common. And I just, I was really curious. I kind of did a thought experiment. I was like, are these people just sort of good at what they do? Like, are they all over the map? Because if they are, that's a different kind of book. That's not a handbook. You know, what can we learn from that? But that's possible. But what I found is if you scrape away all the surface level, like all the stuff, all the content, and just talk about the delivery mechanisms and the human psychology stuff, and it, it can be boiled down into 12 strategies or 12 principles almost without fail. Interesting. And how far back time-wise are you going? Like who's the first person? I don't know in the book. I should think about that. I will tell you though, something I didn't include in the book, it didn't make the cut, but um, it, it, to show how long this stuff has been used, like, you know, the Aeneid by Virgil that, that every Latin student used yeah. to read. Now we don't learn Latin anymore, but that was literally a piece of propaganda. So like Augustus was the first emperor of Rome. And now we think of the word emperor, but emperor was a military title. It was imperium and princeps. It meant like the first of the Senate. That's where we get prince. So he was a dictator. I mean, he, 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 you know, and the Romans notoriously hated kings. Like they were, they had a Republic and they were like the worst insult. It's like our society. If you call Donald Trump a king, that's like mm -hmm. insulting. That's you, you don't want to be a king. And so he needed to legitimize his reign in a very big way. So he commissioned this poem that basically showed a different structure of Rome, that they they were they had their roots back in the Trojan War. And it, it, it just created this entire like structure that legitimized his reign. And, and people have been reading it for thousands of years. So that wasn't in the book, but I thought that was just you know, people like learn marketing or self-promotion and they they read books about sales funnels or they take courses on social media and that stuff's important those are tools you know just like hammers and nails are tools but like the human principles have been around they were probably around in tribes before we had poli real political structures they're just it's the way our brains are evolved mm -hmm. yeah this is the second time you've mentioned tribes and in a different way but i have so many questions circling around this i'm trying to yeah. target one um well, what is it, what is it about building a tribe? How do we build tribes? I think there's a lot of ways to build tribes, but I also think it's really important to recognize how tribal we are. I mean, I, I think human beings are one of the most social animals on earth. Far none. I mean, far more than wolves, who we think of as traveling around in packs. I mean, the worst thing you can do to a, peep, a person is put them in solitary confinement. Put a cat in solitary confinement. They don't care, you know? I mean, maybe for they'll get a little angry, you know? They'll tip over their water bowl. But, like, it's not the worst thing you can do to a cat, you know? But put a, if, but put a person in solitary confinement. Or even COVID. I mean, think about this. We've got all this technology, and people are so unhappy, Mm -hmm. that they can't interact in person. I am, you know? So, and there are reasons for that. There was a really interesting um, 
archaeological find. It was a big find that um, so this archaeologist found this um, alcove in uh, South Africa and through a, a variety of different things, a variety of like sort of detective work, you know, archaeological detective work. He has a really strong, um, a lot of evidence that, that this area was where all of our ancestors originated from. So there were human beings all over the place and there was a climate change event. Um, and they have evidence of that. And we came very, very close to extinction, the, you know, Homo sapiens. And this group found this um, bed where there was seafood, where there were like oysters and, and, and mussels and things. And um, the thing about that is it's very high calorie and it's very easy to get. So you don't have to hunt for it, you know, and this and that. So the only thing, so it was like eating. So the only thing keeping them from eating this was other tribes. So there was just this huge competition or other humans, you know, not even other tribes. So basically we evolved the very strong hypothesis or theory goes, I mean, this is the part that, that that's an extension to really easily bond with people in our group so we can cooperate, but really hate people outside of our group. And if you look at oxytocin, which is the chemical that, you know, the cuddle chemical, it's what mm -hmm. bonds us to our children, to our romantic partners. There's something people don't know about oxytocin. It, it also is the, the chemical behind racism. It's the chemical that makes you distrust and dislike people who aren't like you, you know? So I think we don't want to think this about ourselves, but what makes a tribe is that we're, it's what we are and they're not, you know what I mean? I mean, it's, 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 you know, we're not that other thing. Because like we're Amer our tribe is the, a lot of things, but let's say our tribe is American. Well, we're so different in so many ways, but we're not like those French speakers, you know what I mean, or whatever. So unfortunately, or fortunately, or whatever, that's that's a lot of it, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. Can we do anything about that? I think you just. No, I think you harness it for good, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, in other words, I don't know how you break evolution. I think you can recognize it. I think the worst thing you can do is say, I don't want that to be the case, so I'm not going to accept it, right? Mm -hmm. Then again, one great thing about human beings is that we're able to fight our nature and channel our nature into, into good, right? I mean, I think um, there are a lot of people who only eat plants because they have very strong reasons for doing that. And I don't think that's in our nature, right? So some people would, would disagree, but I think most would say that we have a craving for dead animals, right? So most of us do. So, I mean, I think the way to harness it is to recognize it and then use those impulses for good. So can you, can you build a tribe around an idea instead of other people? So like, I don't know, you could say, certain politicians say we're not like the Mexicans and not like the Muslims. And that makes people feel bonded to, to said politician. But you could also say we are Americans and we are, we, we um, are against authoritarianism. You know, we were of all different races and creeds. And the only thing that makes us American is that we have a disgust toward authoritarianism and country and, and governments that don't follow the rule of law. 
And I think that's what got a lot of people in World War II to stand up for America, right? I mean, it wasn't, we weren't fighting for the American race. There is no American race. Mm -hmm. It was that Nazism, it was so an antithetical to how we identify. So yeah, it's the same impulse. And so it's, there's a connection between creating a movement and it sounds like actually creating a movement around an idea or whatever, I guess you can create a movement around anything. Um, but the creating the movement not creates the tribe, but like calls the tribe. Yeah, I, I think you hit on a really good point because it, it's, I think it's really tough for people to give up their identity. So a lot of times we ask people, so we'll say to someone, oh, this political movement, it's so clear that what they're saying has been discredited. Why do people go for it? Well, because all of their friends believe that. It's the the, the, the bumper stickers on their cars, the, you know, I mean, that's that's their identity, right? Like, how are they going to stand against that? It's almost harder to give up your identity than give up your be your beliefs, you know? Right. And we all want to belong. Like, that's a huge driver. We all want to belong. We all need to belong. I mean, I'm technically Jewish, right? Like, I grew up Jewish, not religious. And I'm not religious at all. I don't really think I believe in the religion at all. And I wanted to raise my kid Jewish and we don't even go to synagogue, but I wanted her to be called Jewish. And people ask me why. And I'm like, I don't know. I just care. I, I, why would I care? I mean, logically, I don't care. Belonging. Runs deep, you know? Yeah. So I want to talk about you and the book. What in becoming best friends with all these figures, these hype men um, and women. What? There's more than one. I okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Women. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, did, what changed in your life? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've really begun to dug my, dig my heels in on this idea. I've become so convinced that it's almost imperative that people open their minds up to the idea that these strategies or these ideas are just the way it is. I've become a realist. You know what I mean? I guess that's what it is. I think when I was young, even though I was fascinated with those kind of people, I, again, I never wanted to own a business. I have a business. I really love running my business, but I wasn't one of those people who was like selling like, you know, whatever, like Coke bottles on the Coke cans on the corner to make mm -hmm. money. I just, yeah, it's a vehicle for what I want to do. So I always thought like, I wanted to believe the cream would rise to the top. Like if you made a great record or wrote a great book, you would be discovered and it would be found. And and I, I, I just, yeah, that wasn't always true, but like, you know, ultimately the great stuff gets found. And I just like, after having gone through, I see people who are realists who are not realists, who constantly are struggling to get awesome ideas heard that could make the world a better place. And then I see all these other people who um, they just get it. And on balance, there's a lot of good people. I mentioned the Richard Richard Bransons and Martin Luther Kings, but on balance, it's, it's the people 
pushing garbage, you know? And I, I there are reasons for that. I mean, sociopaths um, tend to not let emotion get in the way and they, 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 they're able to look at people as chess pieces. And so even though the tactics may not be inherently bad, they don't have hangups about using them, right? And it just, I feel like it, 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 I've just become so convinced when people say to me things like, well, isn't this hype stuff horrible and negative and shouldn't we not have to use it? I like go to the mat about that because it's, it's why the good people keep losing, you know? And, and it's, it just drives me nuts, you know? Because all, it, it just the people doing great stuff would have so much of the better shot. And that's true in politics. I'm trying to not be, I've been political already, but I'm, I mean, I think we all know what my political beliefs are, but I think the side that I tend to think has more to offer to the world is so horrendous at this stuff. I'll, should, I'll just come out with it. So defund the police is the stupidest slogan of all time. Like that breaks every principle in hype. So there's this principle called give the babies their milk before you give them their meat, that people have a hard time accepting radically new ideas unless you introduce it in increments and wrap it in stuff they're familiar with. And Martin Luther King was great at this. If you look at his speeches, and he had a lot of reasons to be upset with, with, with the United States of America. It was all from sea to shining sea, glory, glory, hallelujah, all this very patriotic language. So you want to reform the police. Defund the police, take the money away. Like who's going to accept, like how, like, yeah, maybe that should be the slogan, but could there be a worse way to get that thing to happen? So I see this time and time again, and it drives me crazy. Thank you for explaining that. Maybe you I, love defund the police as a slogan. I don't know. I, no, I don't. And yeah. I agree with you completely, but you just explained the whole issue with it. I just knew like it wasn't resonant and didn't feel aligned. Like this is really confusing and complicated to people. It's kind of like I can sit there all day long and talk about all the problems with Israel, you know, and I can get heated about that. But if some person who's never met a Jewish person in their life starts talking about Israel is a Nazi state, an apartheid state, I'm like, well, wait a minute, buddy. You know what I mean? I don't know so much about that. You know, so, so it's like people don't like police murdering people, but they like having police, you know, so to just so to ask that makes them uncomfortable, like viscerally, yeah. you know. Yeah. How did you, wait, is that when you started your business, did you know that phrase, like give the, give the babies milk before they no, give them meat? No, did no, you learn that, that along out, the way? Yeah. That came out of my research. Yeah. That is so interesting. It's so that's obvious. A religious, that's a religious phrase. That's really, so if you think of like most religion, new religions, no matter what the religion is, they're weird. I'm yeah, not saying and, they're good or bad. They're all weird. And religion is hype. Yeah. So the ones that are good, I mean, I mean, you're literally, so one religion talks about a man saw a burning, and I'm not saying whether it's true or false. That's mm -hmm. not what I'm saying, but a man saw a burning bush on the side of a road, you know, it, it, it didn't burn up. It, it, it was the voice of God, you know, and this and that. Another one says that um, we were all sinners and we were ready to go to hell, but then a guy got 
crucified, nailed to a, nailed to a pole, and as a result, we're, we're all saved. Another religion says there's aliens on the lip of a volcano. Another one says the Garden of Eden is in Minnesota or Minneapolis or wherever it is, Missouri, you know. So like, if you don't introduce that stuff, so that's actually a religious phrase. A lot of religions say you shouldn't preach all that stuff in the beginning. Like Scientologists never start with the aliens on the lip of the volcano. They start with positive thinking and personal development, you know, and um, the Nation of Islam actually um, doesn't start with the idea that there's a mad scientist on a planet who created the white race to destroy the original man. They start with don't eat pork because it'll make you thinner and feel better, you know, so. You're, this is fascinating. <laughs> I don't really know what to say. <laughs> I'm just like, keep talking. This You're a is, good interviewer. This You're is a, a great class. I'm enjoying this a lot. <laughs> I feel like I'm talking so much. I feel like I should like, uh, I mean, I know it's my interview, but like, you know, what about um, you? What's going on in your life? <laughs> what's going on in my life? I, I rode my bike a hundred miles on Sunday. That's I, what's going on in my life. It's pretty good. I didn't do that. <laughs> it's a little warmer here than it is there. It's true. I couldn't do it. Not right now. One day, but I'd have to milk before meat. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 It's very true. Actually, I said that in the, I recorded a podcast over the weekend before I rode and for some reason, I felt compelled to include the disclaimer, like, yes, I'm riding 100 miles tomorrow, but I've been training for this. So in other words, like, you guys don't go out and ride 100 miles without training. And it's like, you know, did you ever hear that thing? Do you know what happened to the person who ran the first marathon? <laughs> I haven't heard that. This is true. Oh, he died. He, the died. Guy, he got there and he died. Yeah, he died. Yeah. 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 He didn't so train, you don't just, just like run 26 miles, no. you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it took him. Well, I don't remember. There's someone it took days. Did it? Did it take? Yeah. Well, I know he died. So yeah, yeah you he got there, care. delivered the message and died. Drop dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What else do we need to know about benevolent mischief? I don't know. I mean, it's, there, there, there's a lot. I mean, it's, um, you know, it just, gosh, I mean, um, I can just start throwing a few things. I mean, you know, theatricality is important, but it's not what people think. It's, um, doesn't mean you have to dress in, in costumes and, and, and prance around. I mean, it can be anything from Amway who like, think about Amway. They basically, um, they essentially, no one knows their products, right? I mean, they're, they're so successful that they have an arena named after them. But like, I don't know, their detergent is like called, I don't, I'm not going to get it right, like S8 or something. And, and like, no, I mean, you don't, I mean, like, or they have like a mouth spray that no one, I mean, everyone knows Banaka, no one knows that. So what did they do? And, and it comes down to their network marketing thing, but their product is really the people, the salespeople. So they use theatricality. If, if you go to one of their rallies, it's, it's like, it's like, a rock concert, but not a rock concert now at $400 a ticket, like a rock concert when people were like fainting. It's like a Beatles concert, mm -hmm. lights, you know, an assault of the senses. But also, you know, theatricality can be using words like casting someone in a great drama. Like it's how Winston Churchill got English people to allow themselves to be bombed and stand tight. He, it was like, we'll fight on the beaches, we'll fight on the sea, you know, you know, you're the hero in this story. So that's one. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, gosh, they're, 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 you know, milk before me. Another interesting thing is um, people always think that they should give uh, 
joy and pleasure and service wherever they can. So the idea is that always make things as comfortable as possible for your customers, for your clients. And if you look at, um, and there's science behind this, the most successful marketers and hype artists inject a small amount of discomfort, sometimes even pain. So like there's this uh, religious festival in Greece where people walk on hot stones and no one really knows why they do it, but people, they've tried to ban it a few times because people's feet get actually burned, but they say yeah, it's transcendent, it's a religious thing. But this researcher did a paper and he found out that when you induce a little bit of pain, it causes bonding and it causes like a transcendent experience. So, I mean, there's all kinds of examples of this. I mean, Tony Robbins, you know, he frames his firewalks as helping the people be confident. And that may be true, but I would say, and it may be true, I don't know. But it, I would say the best part of the firewalks are what it does for Tony Robbins. It's, it's that he um, bonds people to him and they have this transcendent experience. Or even, you know, a lot of these consultants, you know, they get up on stage and before they tell you, they tell you everything that's wrong with you. The world is changing. And if you don't fix your problems, you're going to be sucked down with the, they all say, the world is changing faster than never before. They've been saying that since 1932, you know? And, and, and you're, and you're just like nervous. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be bankrupt. You know, and you get all jacked up and then they relieve the tension. So that, that, you know, is another thing. I mean, there's a pun become a larger than life character, like downplay your weaknesses. Don't lie, but play up your strengths, downplay your weaknesses, speak with complete certainty. Yeah. So if you had a billboard, which you do, but it's a one with many pages, if you had a, like a legit, <laughs> rectangular billboard you can put it anywhere in the world what would it say see i wouldn't have a billboard you know what <laughs> would you have i would have a book i don't know i mean i don't i don't honestly like i think that um i would say some sort of slogan that was so vague and future focused that you could put your own meaning into it because that's the only kind of thing on a billboard make america great again is a really great slogan because everyone has their own version of america and it doesn't really mean very much. And it's about, you know, the future is always better than the than the present. So I don't know the exact words yet. You're putting me on the spot, but I'd come up with something really vague and future focused and that didn't mean very much. And what's your big hope for this book? You know, I really, really hope that other than the personal ambitions for it, which we all have, you know, when we, we want as many people to see it as possible. But I really hope that people get that this is a call to action to take back control from the people who come to this stuff naturally. And I just want to see a lot of really great businesses and art and causes and nonprofits and political causes using this stuff and doing it without feeling bad about themselves. I, I want to make the case that it's okay and better than okay to use this stuff. And then I want them to actually put the tactics into place because you could put the tactics in into place. That's really my hope for this thing. Mm. I'd like to have it like passed around the way we used to pass around the anarchist cookbook in high school, which is a horrible book, but you know, it just was this idea that any bad thing you want to do is in this one book. I would love to have this passed around like, Hey, listen, if you want, 
to get your idea out into the world and get a lot of people emotionally engaged in it and get them to spread it and be excited about it, just read this book. And I, that'd be really exciting to me. I think you're one of the light workers, Michael. You're here to help the world rise. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. It's time. It means a lot. Thank you so much. Where can people get your book? And what's the name? It's called The Hype Hand Book. Full um, name. The Hype Hand Book. I got to say the full name. The full name. It's like the Borat title. So 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you have a bookstore that's open and they're carrying it, that's always great. But, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all, all, all the usual online outlets, it's on, it's on all of them. And it's available January 12th? January 12th. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you so much for listening. Remember the Hype Handbook drops on January 12th. So head over to wherever you buy your books and check it out on January 12th. Order it now or pre-order it. And let's make some benevolent mischief, people. And of course, making benevolent mischief is easiest when you remember who you are. And making benevolent mischief can happen with so much ease and flow and joy when you're doing it aligned with your design. So book your human design reading right now over at kelseyabbott.com slash human design. You can book an individual reading or a partner reading there. And if you want to make some magic, if you're there's something in your life that you're feeling stuck on, head over to kelseyabbott.com slash soul dash magic and book a soul magic session with Tina and me. We will help you bust through whatever has gotten in your way, whether it's something that you are out of alignment with, or, you know, maybe it's an unconscious belief that's just lodged somewhere in your body. Maybe it's an unconscious belief that's not even yours. Maybe it's from one of your ancestors. Maybe it's from a past life. No problem. We got it. No matter what is next for you, remember, you are amazing. You are wonderful. You are here to make benevolent mischief. I love you. Go forth and be awesome.